listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the book of Acts, how Christians live. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. All right, everybody. You may or may not know this good-looking guy up here on the platform, Michael Galupo. Michael, why don't you tell everybody what you do? I think it's best coming from your mouth, yeah. and then people can have an appreciation of what you do. Yeah, absolutely. I do all the audio and stage design is my title here. So I'm in the back every week mixing or training volunteers who are back there mixing today. Bill is one of my awesome volunteers back there. Also, uh, stage design stuff. We, we like to keep the stage design fresh every couple years, or even weekly, setting the stage for what worship band is going to be up that week. Um, and then on the other side, I put my computer, getting all your messages online to all the avenues, couragematters.com, Godfactor, Grace's website, and to WJTL. The radio. Yeah. Pretty much everything. And how old are you? 25. He's 25 years old, and he does all that stuff. I mean, that is amazing what he does. Anything that uh, sound, visual related, it eventually gets traced back to Michael Gluba. And you do it with a great attitude. Thank you. You do it with, uh, it's fun to run with you. It really is. And if you would have known me when I was 25, you would have quickly forgotten me. Uh, just like my calculus teacher, couldn't remember who I was, right? Well, Michael, you're holding a book in your hand. Yeah. What book is that, and why are you holding it in your well, hand? Well, this would be a book by Pastor Michael Anthony, yeah, your that's, book. That's the book that I wrote, <laughs> yeah, A Call for Courage. Yep. And we were talking uh, a little bit last week, yeah. and I asked you to come up on the stage because something happened to you as you were reading this book, and I wanted you to share it with everybody. Yeah, well, you know I'm a reader, and so you asked me to read this book and to see what I thought, and I was going to read it anyway but you asked to give my opinion. Yeah. And so naturally, I read it that night, in one night. Well, in 24 hours. <laughs> I went to sleep, read the rest in the morning, but read it all in, in one day. And I didn't even read it. I didn't even read it in one day. Why did you do that? Why did you read well, it so quickly? Well, I didn't plan on it. I sat down and I was like, I'll read two, three chapters. I said, and my goal was two or three chapters. And how many people binge watch Netflix or binge watch TV? Raise your hand. You're, you're out there. Everybody binge watches Netflix. It was like binge watching Netflix in that you get captured by it in the story and I couldn't stop reading. Hmm. It was really, it wasn't like I was getting too much information and losing half of it. I was absorbing it all because it really, it wasn't a book for knowledge. It felt like a book for action. Hmm. And it feels like I'll be able to read it again and again and it's not going to get old. I can go back to spots that I need to get to because it really equips us as Christians for how we need to respond to the world. We don't need to shove the Bible down their throats. We need to act in love, as you say. And one of the, one of the quotes in the book that I pulled out was, hate has become the new love and love has become the new hate. Wrong is right and right is wrong. And sometimes as Christians, we fall into that too. We don't realize we're hating when we go against a group of people or any non-Christian, but really that's what some of us do. And it, it changed my mindset on how to interact with the world. Exciting. Interesting. Interesting. You know, for me, it fires me up to hear you say that because I wrote the book for you. And I wrote the book for you. I did not want to write a book that would just stimulate gray matter. Mm-hmm and provide information. I believe that we're at desperate times in our nation. I believe that um, our nation is in the midst of a tremendous transition, transformation that's been underway for a number of years in an accelerated way. And so the way we live for Jesus today in the nation is different than the way we would live, say, 50 years ago. There are specific challenges that we're facing as a nation, and I wrote a call for courage to address those. Do you feel like that was accomplished in the book for you? Definitely, yeah, absolutely. Because you address in the first parts of the book, you know, here's the problem and here's some solutions. In the middle, one of my favorite chapters was called um, Broken Glass. It talks about here's what could happen and why if we don't respond with action mm -hmm. today. And then one of the things that you talk about a lot in your messages and, and podcasts and stuff like that is there's just talking heads and people like to talk about the problem. There's two whole chapters on the book of solutions and here's what you can do practically. Mm -hmm. And last week, uh, Gina had an amazing story yeah. of something she responded with and I haven't had an opportunity like that, but 
I'm equipped and praying for an opportunity like that. Where before I wanted to stay away from that because that's that's scary. Right. right. You know. Right. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to help you navigate through, you know, in light of what's happening. So how am I supposed to live as a follower of Jesus? So that's incredibly encouraging. Anything else that you wanted to share about the book? I mean, I, I do have to say, working with the audio, I hear two messages a week, and then I hear it a third time to going through and editing for the radio and stuff like that. And there was so much new information that I hadn't heard before. I listen to him three times a week yeah. and it's you amazing every time. You need to pray for him. <laughs> no, it's, it's a, it's a blessing, but there was so much new stuff that, you know, I thought I would hear a lot of the messages over again, not in a negative way, but there was so much new information. I was like, I'm waiting on the next sermons to, to address the rest of it. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, I really appreciate that. I and the other pastors, the other pastors and I are going to actually be doing a series. Our next series, the end of April, is going to be a call for courage. And we're going to take you through not just me preaching, but the other pastors as well, because we're going through it as a staff, the elders, the deacons. We're reading the whole book. And I want you to read it as well. I want you to keep in mind that all the proceeds from sales at Grace Fellowship go to Grace Fellowship. I'm not doing this for the money. If I was doing it for the money, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. But it is about a movement that needs to happen in the nation. And I wrote a book that's designed to be a manual. Other people are calling it a manifesto for the times that we're living in. So I wrote it for you. You need to get it. We have them out there in the atrium. You can get them online as well. But you need to read the book and you need to share your testimony. So maybe you have been impacted and are being impacted by the book. All you need to do is go into the atrium today, go to the information desk, which you see we changed the location of the information desk, and say, hey, I'd like to share my story about how the, the book is impacting me, and we'll contact you, and you could be up here on the stage as well. It's not that difficult to be up here, is it? No, nah, no, no. You want to preach you, now, Tim? Every, no, no, I'll leave that to you. Okay. I'll leave that to you. It's not that difficult at all. Not that difficult at all. We'll help you. We'll, we'll help you uh, navigate through it. So go, let your name be known at the information desk, or you can shoot us an email, info at graceyork.com. We'll get in touch with you and you can share your story too because it's not my book, it's our book. It is a book for the times. And if you don't believe that our nation's undergoing a fundamental transition right before our very eyes, you've got your head stuck in a bucket somewhere. It's undergoing a tremendous transition, but you can navigate through it with tremendous success. You can, and that's what a call for courage is. It's designed to help spark a revolution of courageous humility courageous humility in your life for such a time as this, okay? Mike, great to have you on the team. Thank great you. to run with you, buddy. Appreciate you. Thanks for your testimony. Thank, thank you, thank you, thank you. Today, I'm cheating a little bit. I have notes in front of me, but what we're covering today is especially so important and especially so detailed that I want to make sure that I don't miss anything. And I want to encourage you, whether you're watching at home or whether you're here in person, I want to encourage you to write down scripture verses and passages that I'm going to bring up so that you can take some time all throughout this week as we're heading up toward Good Friday. Hopefully you're going to join us for Good Friday at 7 p.m. right here. We're going to have a special service. All the pastors and I are going to be sharing there. And then Easter Sunday, all the pastors and I are going to be sharing again. And I want you to be able to have some coal in the furnace, so to speak, so that this week you can take some time to look at these passages of scripture and reflect and think about them, all right, and be encouraged. Remember, I always say the Bible is such a book that man wouldn't write if he could, couldn't write if he would. You can't make this stuff up. When you think about the prophecies concerning the life of Jesus being written between 500 and 1,500 years before Jesus comes on the scene, it's obvious when you think about how long a generation is, generations would have died off and then Jesus comes on the scene. You can't make this stuff up. And what I want to cover today are some of the prophecies that were fulfilled within 24 hours of Jesus' last day alive. Within 24 hours, all of the amazing things that took place. I'm just going to scratch the surface here to help you be encouraged and to remember that the Bible is such a book that man wouldn't write if he could, couldn't write if he would. This is a book unlike any other book. And by the time we're done, you're going to be encouraged. Remember to build your faith, lift your Bible. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So there's so many scriptures here that I'm going to be dealing with. It's going to be like drinking from a fire hose today. So I want to go through some of the things that Jesus experienced in the last 24 hours of his life. And experts have said that the probability, if you think about the law of compound probability, if I had a quarter 
If I flipped that quarter into the air, there'd be a 50-50 chance of it being heads or tails. But then if I took that same quarter and flipped it again, according to the law of compound probability, there'd be a 25% chance of that quarter landing again on its head or again on tails. And it gets increasingly less likely the more times you flip that coin, according to the law of compound probability. Well, the chances of the prophecies that we're going to go over today and their fulfillment in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, leading up to it, including his crucifixion, the chances of them being written 500 to 1,500 years before they actually were fulfilled has a probability of one in 33 million of actually becoming reality. One in 33 million. There is no book like the Bible, no God like our God, the God of the Bible, no Jesus like our Jesus. That's right, you can get excited because it's true. And I want you to understand that the Bible is such a book that man wouldn't write if he could, couldn't write if he would. Let's jump in right here. The 30 pieces of silver issue, Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. You understand from the New Testament, if you look at Matthew 26, you understand that there are 30 pieces of silver involved in the betrayal of Jesus. Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13 says this. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them, at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. So amazing things right there, this idea of silver being involved, 30 pieces of silver, they were thrown down, as we see in Zechariah. The Lord's house is referenced, that the Lord's house is where they were thrown down. And we see this idea of a purchase price and the potter being referenced. Well, in Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 and 15, and then also in Matthew 27, verses three through 10, this is what we see. First, Matthew 26, 14 and 15. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Then in Matthew 27, verses 3 through 10, I'm going to read these here. Here's the account of where this took place. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned... He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. That's going to become important in a moment here with other passages and prophecies. They said, what's that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, which would be the Lord's house, right? Reference in Zechariah. He departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests taking the pieces of silver said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. What a hypocrisy that's going on right here, right? So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field, the potter's field, has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, which we haven't even referenced here today, and they took 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price has been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Here's another example of Jeremiah being one of the prophets where the 30 pieces of silver and the potter's field is referenced, and Zechariah, another prophet. These prophets didn't live during each other's time, and yet they spoke by the direction of the Holy Spirit and their fulfillment was found in Jesus. Another one here, the scripture teaches very clearly in Psalm 41, verse 9, and also Psalm 55, verses 12 through 14, that the Messiah, that Jesus would be betrayed by his friend, all right? Psalm 41, verse 9 says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. You remember that it's during the Last Supper when Jesus says, it's he who dips his hand in the bowl with me. And it's he who I give this bread to. And that says in the scriptures, and then Satan entered Judas Iscariot. Psalm 55 verses 12 through 14 says, for it's not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. 
It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him, but it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. Judas Iscariot with Jesus for three, three and a half years during Jesus' whole ministry. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. And the fulfillment is found in Matthew 26, verses 47 through 50, and then also John chapter 13, verse 18. First Matthew 26, 47 through 50. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12. This is when they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. And with him, a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Amazing. John 13, 18. I'm going to read beginning in the end of verse 13 of John chapter 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for I am so. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Notice Jesus, his go-to handbook, his playbook was the Old Testament, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. People say today, well, Jesus didn't say that because it's not in the red letters. You know, some of you have versions of the Bible, you know, red letter versions in the New Testament that highlight the words of Jesus, the specific sayings that Jesus uttered with his mouth. And they say, well, if it's not in red, then Jesus didn't say it. Well, here's Jesus referencing the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament was Jesus' playbook. So if it's in the Old Testament, Jesus said it. Jesus still says it, and it's important. So some of us right there, you had an epiphany, and you said, well, I never thought about it that way. But it's true. Jesus' go-to handbook, his playbook, was the Old Testament. He was constantly referencing the Old Testament and helping it be understood in the first century and beyond, even today in the 21st century. Important for us to understand. Look at Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, as you write this down. It was prophesied that Jesus, the Messiah, would be forsaken by his disciples. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Fulfilled in Matthew 26, verse 56. I'm going to begin in verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs. Right? We looked at this a little bit earlier from a different angle. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, the one I will kiss is the man, sees him, and he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, of those who were with Jesus, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels, thousands of angels. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Where do those scriptures come from? New Testament hadn't been written yet. Old Testament. So Jesus is seeing himself as being the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies in reference to the Messiah. He would have been either blaspheming or out of his mind to say those things unless he was in his mind and completely aligned with his heavenly father, which we know he was and he is. And by the way, if somebody says, well, Jesus was out of his mind and inserting himself into the Old Testament in ways he shouldn't have, then you have this huge thing called the resurrection. Um, That's kind of a problem if you're going to take the line that, well, Jesus was out of his mind and inserting himself, trying to make himself the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. You have this problem with the resurrection, regardless of what Jesus taught and said and did. It seems that God the Father still had the final say in putting his stamp of approval, his kiss of approval on the life, the death, the teachings, the ministry, the person of Jesus, because God the Father would not have resurrected a charlatan, a liar, a lunatic from the dead. But the fact that he did is God the Father's statement, and if it was good enough for God the Father, it should be good enough for any mere mortal. 
verse 55 of Matthew 26. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you didn't seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Prophecy fulfilled. It said in the Old Testament that the disciples would leave him, and there it happened in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. It fulfilled the Scriptures. So we see Jesus continually referencing the Old Testament, understanding that he was the fulfillment of those passages, and all these things are happening within the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. Mark 14, 27 says, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written. It is written. Where is it written? In those Old Testament prophecies, the word of Jesus written by the Old Testament prophets. This is where it is. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Who are the sheep? The disciples of the Lord Jesus. He would be accused by false witnesses prophesied about in the Old Testament. Psalm 35 verse 11 and Psalm 109 verse 2. Let's look at Psalm 109, verse 2. Let's look at that because uh, our time is limited, but you're able to go back and look at all of these verses for yourself. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause, without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer, so they reward me evil for good." and hatred for my love. Fulfilled in Matthew chapter 26, verses 59 and 60. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. There was a rush to judgment here. They didn't want honesty. They didn't want truth. Their jealous hearts were super jealous. Jesus taught as one who had authority and the crowds were mesmerized and captivated by the way Jesus taught, how he taught, what he taught in ways that no Pharisee, no Sadducee captivated the crowd. So there was a tremendous degree of jealousy going on there from a human perspective that God was using to do what? To ensure that the Old Testament prophecies would be fulfilled. Jesus had to be accused falsely, innocently. Why? Because he was and still is without sin. This is the whole idea of a substitute sacrifice, that Jesus paid the price that you couldn't pay, that he suffered the death in your place. You couldn't have died for the forgiveness of your own sins because you can't clean a dirty table with a filthy rag. You have a problem that I have. You have a sin problem. You have sin nature. Jesus didn't have a sin nature or a sin problem. He had to be accused falsely. He had to be accused falsely and condemned to die a criminal's death on the cross so that the Old Testament scriptures could be fulfilled, the idea of a substitute sacrifice. That's the beauty of God, the undeserved favor of God, the grace of God, that he would put all of the punishment and the wrath that you deserve, that I deserve, on his son who didn't deserve it. He was falsely accused. And so the next time you're tempted to sin, the next time you're tempted to engage in what I like to refer to as temporary insanity, because that's what sin is, spiritual amnesia, right? You do things you shouldn't do. You forget who you are. You forget the price that was paid for you. Anybody who willingly commits sin consciously and thinks, well, God's going to forgive me anyway, Jesus died for all of my sins, past, present, and future. Listen, you need to understand that you are just like one of the Roman soldiers pounding in the nails into Jesus' hands and feet if you take that attitude. You don't want to intentionally sin. You don't want to willingly, consciously sin because you're subjecting Jesus to shame and disgrace, and you're belittling the tremendously high price that was paid in an amazing way in exchange for your life. I mean, how can our lives individually come even close to the value of the life of Jesus? So think about that the next time you're tempted to think of the cross of Jesus in a grace-cheapening way. Well, it doesn't matter. Jesus forgave my sins, past, present, and future. Well, he did, but he didn't do that so that you could go on sinning. He did that so that you could live a new life, a life that is set apart and sanctified 
characterized by holiness. That's the purpose of why Jesus saved you, why he saved me. In Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 6, prophesied about that the Messiah would be rejected, scorned, beaten, and spat upon. Sorry to you in the first row. Sorry about that. (laughs) Prophesied about very clearly in Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 6, that the Messiah would be rejected, beaten, spat upon, mocked, and this was fulfilled in Jesus. Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 6. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Hundreds of years before the arrival of Jesus, before the birth of Jesus. Fulfilled in Luke chapter 22, verses 64 and 65. I'll begin with 63 for a little bit of context here. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Interesting that Luke the physician who's writing about the great physician, Jesus, says that they blaspheme Jesus. The word blasphemy, or the idea of blaspheming, is reserved for derogatory comments directed toward God. That's what a blasphemy is. That's what a blasphemous comment is. And Luke, again, as we see throughout the New Testament, is rightly attributing to Jesus the characteristics of deity, Because you wouldn't say that a human being was blasphemed. Only God can be blasphemed. When somebody says or does something in a derogatory way against God. And so what the physician is saying about the great physician, Jesus, is that they were committing blasphemy against him. Matthew chapter 26, verses 67 and 68, in the fulfillment of this idea of the Messiah being rejected and beaten and spat upon, mocked, says this, Verse 67, 68, then they spit on his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? You know, it's a little difficult to read these verses and not pause and just take in for a moment what was going through Jesus' mind at that moment. Just take in for a moment this idea of all that Jesus endured even before the cross. People say today that God doesn't judge, Jesus doesn't judge. Do you understand the whole reason why Jesus was reviled and mocked and spit upon and ridiculed? Even before the cross, the cross is the ultimate expression of that. Because through this whole process leading up to the crucifixion and including the crucifixion, the wrath, the punishment of God, the attitude of God toward sin is being expressed. What does God think about your sin? What does he think about my sin? You look at the punishment of Jesus leading up to the cross. You look at the punishment of Jesus on the cross. That's what the Bible means when it says the punishment that brought us peace was upon his shoulders. In Ephesians chapter 2, when we read that all of us were objects of wrath before we were saved, before we gave our lives to Christ, the wrath of God is manifest in what's happening to Jesus as he's being led to the cross, as he's being condemned, and as he's hanging on the cross. That's how bad sin is. The next time somebody says, well, Jesus didn't judge. God doesn't judge us. You shouldn't judge us. You shouldn't judge me. It's categorically false. It's unbiblical. The whole very nature of the cross is God judging sin while simultaneously expressing his love for the sinner. The intensity of God's hatred for sin and his love for sinners is manifest on the cross. And the intensity of Jesus' hatred for sin and his love for sinners that he was giving his life for is manifest on the cross. On the cross, justice 
and mercy kissed. In an unusual collision, in an amazing convergence, God, through the cross, dealt with sin and demonstrated his hatred for it while dealing with sinners and demonstrating his love for sinners. For God so loved the world that he gave in this way his uniquely brought forth one-of-a-kind son that whoever believes in him would not perish, that's the love of God, but have eternal life. Amazing, amazing, amazing. God loves you and demonstrated his love for you by dealing completely, wholly, with every single one of your sins so that you could be holy and wholly devoted to Jesus. Express your love and your gratitude toward Jesus by living the rest of your life with thanksgiving for the fact that while you were still a sinner, Jesus died for you. Sin is a very serious thing. And all we need to do is look at the punishment that Jesus endured leading up to the cross and hanging on the cross as the evidence for how serious your sin and my sin is. Not just the sin of people who are pedophiles and people involved in sexual immorality, the sins of financial impropriety, sin of lust, sin of greed, sin of gossip, sin of slander, a sin of lying. All of those things are the sins that Jesus was carrying on his shoulders when he hung on the cross. All of those things are serious and any one of them is enough to keep anybody out of a relationship with God, not only in this present life, but in the life to come. Separated, eternally speaking, from God. All sin is significant in the sight of God. Let's look at Psalm 22, verse 16. Psalm 22, verse 16. The psalmist predicted, prophesied, that the hands and the feet of the Messiah would be pierced. Now, the Hebrew language that's used here could refer to arms, not necessarily just hands. And anatomically, there's some debate about this through the years, that the only anatomical place where you could have held somebody up on the cross in crucifixion would have been the wrist, right between the two bones in the wrist here. But that still falls right in line with what's predicted here, prophesied about in Psalm 22, that they pierced my hands and my feet. It could easily apply to arms and feet. Psalm 22, verse 16, for dogs encompass me. That would be a reference to Gentiles. Gentiles were referred to as dogs. And who were the ones who were responsible for actually being the hands of the crucifixion event? It was the Romans, the Gentiles, all right? Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Luke 23, verse 33. Two others who were criminals were led away and put to death with him, with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. The idea of being crucified with thieves, which we just looked at there, in Luke chapter 22, Isaiah 53, verse 12. Isaiah 53, verse 12. I'd encourage you to use Isaiah 53. It's a great passage of Scripture, prophetic passage of Scripture, one of the greatest passages in all of the Bible, along with Psalm 22, that details what's involved in a crucifixion hundreds of years before the crucifixion actually took place. You can't make this stuff up. Remember, this is all taking place, all being fulfilled within the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, and there is the probability of this actually converging coincidentally of one in 33 million for all of these prophecies, which I'm just touching on right now, but crucified with thieves, Isaiah 53, verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, meaning counted along with sinners, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 12 also, yet he bore the sin of many, makes intercession for the transgressors. Luke chapter 23, verse 34 says this, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus interceding for those who were responsible for crucifying him. It's amazing. Look at Psalm 22, verse seven, where it says that people would shake their heads in disbelief, 
in disregard, in disrespect for Jesus. All who see me mock me and make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Psalm 109 verse 25 says, I'm an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Matthew 27 Beginning in verse 39 says this, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel as people were attributing to him and as he was letting himself be attributed and as he was saying he was, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now. And if he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way, prophesied about in the Psalms, fulfilled in the way that Jesus was mocked. Psalm 22, verse 8 says that people would mock Jesus. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Fulfilled again in Matthew 27, verses 41 and 43. You can look at that on your own time. Look at the idea of the garments that would be divided, how Jesus' garments would be divided and they would cast lots for his clothing. In Psalm 22, verse 18 says this, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. One of the most overt, blatant fulfillments of prophecy found in its fulfillment in the way that Jesus was crucified, the way the Romans were behaving in John chapter 19, verses 23 and 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, his undergarment. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, look at how amazing this is, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Amazing, mind-blowing. Psalm 22, verse 1 prophesied that Jesus, the Messiah, would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the clearest things that Jesus utters while he's on the cross, which is actually, if you were to study a little bit further, a proclamation of his victory, not of defeat. That's for another time and another day. Psalm 22, verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Why was that fulfilled in Jesus? Why would he say, My God, my God, why do you forsake me? You have to understand, this is the first time, even though Jesus knows what's on the horizon, that he would be resurrected and he would forever go down in history as being the one who had the Father's seal of approval. You have to understand that for the first time on the cross, the Son and the Father are separated. The Father and the Son are now separated. Jesus is experiencing separation from the Father in a way that represents your separation from, from the Father, my separation from the Father, spiritual death. Now, Jesus didn't die spiritually. We don't want to go that far and say that. But we do want to say that Jesus was experiencing for the very first time a break in fellowship between him and the Father. Why? Because that's what sin does. In sin, you were conceived in your mother's womb, the Bible says. We have a sin nature. And so we are born, brought into this world, separated from God. For the very first time, Jesus was experiencing separation from the Father. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 26, verse, Matthew 27, verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Fulfillment of the scriptures. Psalm 69, verse 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine 
to drink. That's prophesied in Psalm 69, verse 21, in Matthew 27, 34, and in John chapter 19, verses 28 and 29. Look what happens here. First, Matthew 27, verse 34. They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, which would have been a numbing agent, kind of like Tylenol or ibuprofen to help those who are being crucified not suffer as much. Why did Jesus not take it? Because he was enduring the full wrath of the Father. Wow. Sin has its penalty. Sin has its price. And the price and the penalty is the unleashed full wrath of God. Yes, God does judge us. Yes, God does love us. Right? Jesus would not drink it. As Matthew 27 says, look at John 19, verses 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, once again, inserted there, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. But we know that he didn't drink it. Amazing. Psalm 31, verse 5 prophesies about the Messiah would commit himself to God the Father. And look at what Psalm 31 verse 5 says, into your hand I commit my spirit. You've redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. And in Luke 23 verse 46 it says this, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Psalm 38 verse 11 says this, my friends and companions stand aloof from my plague and my nearest of kin stand far off. This is a prophecy about those closest to the Messiah would not be close around where he was during his darkest time of suffering. And in Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 44, but especially verse 49, we see this fulfilled. It was now about the sixth hour. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. We're going to see that in just a moment. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Why would the curtain of the temple be torn in two? Because there was a separation between mere mortals and the most holy place in the temple. It was separated by a curtain. In other words, you could not have easy access, immediate access into the presence of God, which is what the Holy of Holies represented. But when the veil of the temple or the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom, why did that happen? Because now there's no separation between mere mortals and God. That the curtain was torn in two. And that through what Jesus did on the cross, we now have unhindered, unlimited access to God the Father The arms of God are open wide to receive you. There's nothing that you've done that's too big, too dark, too dastardly for the forgiving arms of a loving father. And that's why this symbolism was happening. This is why darkness covered the whole land. It was a dark day, dark hours for the son of God, but tremendous benefit for you and for me. The punishment that brought us peace was upon his shoulders. Verse 46, Jesus in Luke chapter 23, Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, the Roman guard, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And look, look at this, fulfillment of Psalm 38 verse 11. All his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Scripture after scripture after scripture being fulfilled. Look with me at Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, the Passover lamb. Did you know that one of the requirements for the Passover lamb in the Old Testament was that the bones could not be broken? It's not because God was interested in just the Passover lamb in the Old Testament. That was a foreshadowing, a type, a looking forward to the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus, whose bones would not be broken either when he hung on the cross. Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. Specified there very clearly in Psalm 34 verse 20, it says he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. So we have Old Testament scripture, 
fulfilled in the New Testament in the way Jesus was crucified. John chapter 12, verses 31 through 36. Since it was the day of preparation for the Sabbath, for the Passover, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, meaning it was a special Sabbath, the Passover, Remember, Jesus celebrated the Last Supper was during the Passover meal. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Such hypocrisy by the leaders of the Jewish people. We don't want to break the law in that regard, even though we're crucifying the Messiah. So they recommend that the legs be broken, because if the legs are broken, when you're hanging on a cross, see, oftentimes it was death by asphyxiation. You would suffocate. But if you can't push yourself up, catch your breath till your legs get so tired that you just got to got to you got to go down again hold your breath till you can't hold it anymore that's what was happening hour after hour minute by minute while they're on the cross i'm getting lightheaded just doing it right here so you break the legs so that you can't do that you die quicker that's what was going on on the cross so they want to have all the legs of the three that are on the cross broken and so this is what they order. But in verse 33 of John chapter 19, but when they came to Jesus, saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water, the broken heart of Jesus. That's how he died. His heart burst. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. Remember that the next time you're reading about somebody who lived in the modern era who writes about the account of the Bible being false, there weren't an eyewitness the way this person was. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you may believe, that you may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones was broken. And again, another Scripture, they will look at him whom they have pierced. Pierced side, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, the Jewish nation will look upon Jesus. That's why the marks are still in his arms or his hands, his feet, to remember the tremendously high price that was paid by the Jewish Messiah who died for the sins of Jews and Gentiles. We already looked at the pierced side. The idea of a broken heart. Psalm 22, verse 14, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death. Read Psalm 22 for yourself and you'll understand how amazingly it depicts the crucifixion of an individual. John 19, verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. The idea of darkness covering the whole land is depicted in Amos chapter 8, verse 9. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Guess when the sun became dark when Jesus was being crucified? At noon for three hours during the whole time he was on the cross. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head, meaning embarrassment in New Testament times. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. That's from 12 noon until three o'clock. At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, in Aramaic. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again and with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. He did that for you, did that for me. Verse 51 of Matthew 27, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, meaning your sin was atoned for. You can now approach God. That's what that means. The earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs also were opened, and the bodies of saints who had fallen asleep were raised. 
coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Finally, Isaiah 53 Verse 9, Isaiah 53, verse 9, the idea that the Messiah would be buried in a rich man's tomb. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Prophesied about in Isaiah, fulfilled in Matthew 27, verses 57 through 60. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. He just kind of appears out of nowhere to fulfill scripture, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, very costly, laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock at his own expense. Only a rich man would have had the money to do that and rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. And there you have it, my friends, the one in 33 million chance that all of these prophecies, just to mention some of them, were fulfilled in the final 24 hours of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was and is and is to come, your Savior and mine, the only savior that the world has ever known. And it's important for us to remember in these times in which we live. His name is Jesus. Amen. Wherever you are watching by live stream, we're gonna do this now here live and in person. Today's a great day to turn over a new leaf to begin walking with God like never before. God made him who knew no sin become sin so that you could walk in righteousness and serve Jesus in holiness and purity, not by your own power, but by the power that God provides, courtesy of the Holy Spirit, the moment you give your life to Jesus as your Savior. Folks, we're leading up to Easter. We're leading up to Resurrection Day. Yes. It's a great opportunity for you and for me to meditate on these scriptures, to contemplate the fact that God loved you, loves you so much that he sent his son to pay the ultimate price for the forgiveness of your sins. Don't let yourself experience spiritual amnesia this week. Don't forget the price that was paid for you. Remember that the next time you're tempted to look at something you shouldn't look at, say something you shouldn't say, listen to something you shouldn't listen to, do something you shouldn't do. Live your life for Jesus, trust God, and leave the consequences at his feet. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. You can also invite Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.